All right, so we are continuing an unexpected series on attachment love. And originally, uh, I was going to end it last week, and I looked at the lectionary uh, for this week, and up popped the verses for Luke. And I thought, what a perfect kind of segue uh, from the, the things that I talked about. Well, first, Pastor Joe just kind of introduced the idea of attachment love, and you know, he created this awesome handout that we could use. Um, but then after that, I talked about attachment pain as a part of attachment love. But today, I wanted to talk about the counting the costs of attachment love. And if you look in your bulletin, I can't remember exactly how I worded it. Thank you. Uh, I just put a question that kind of is an overarching question of this week, which is, uh, what love are we attached to and why? Okay. So you can kind of keep that in your mind and then... There's those four questions. I can promise you that there's going to be some things that will hopefully disorient you. Um, So I I have these four questions still there to kind of give us some direction maybe for this morning. But I'll I'll read them for you in case you don't have a bulletin. Uh, So as you're listening this morning, as you're reflecting, what did you learn about God or faith in God that you didn't know before? What made your heart jump for joy because you knew it to be true? What challenged you because you knew it to be true? both true and not how you live, and then what touched a raw nerve and made me go on the defensive and why. So hopefully I'll touch some raw nerves today. It's always my favorite thing to do. Um, Let me read Pastor Joe's just to kind of um, reorient us around attachment love. What is attachment love? Because some of us uh, maybe didn't hear uh, Pastor Joe's explanation of it. So I'm just going to read it for you. Um, This is from his handout. It says, one Hebrew word for God's love is hesed, which refers to the sticky love that is glued to us, bonded, and stays attached regardless of how we act. Uh, an example from this is Psalm 23, 7. It says, goodness and mercy, which is hesed, love, pursue, pursues me all the days of my life. Hesed, or agape love, which is translated in, in Greek in the New Testament, is a kind of strong attachment to others that no matter what they do, we still want to be with them. Attachment love binds us together. We are mostly, most profoundly shaped by who loves us and who we love. Uh, Western Christianity has long taught that we are changed by what we believe and what we choose. However, in the human brain, identity and character are formed by who we love. So this is largely just a conversation about this idea of who and what we love and why. But as with all things in love, there's a cost. And so that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about the verses in Luke 14, which is we're going to go actually starting on verse 25, and then we'll jump to verses 1 through 6, okay? Um, So the first question that I have for you, and for those of you that are visiting for the first time, um, I like to have a little bit of a dialogue. So it's not just you listening to me because that can get super boring really quick. Um, So the first question I have for you so that you can talk amongst yourselves is, have you ever experienced disorienting love? Love that disoriented you. And I don't just mean like romantic love, right? It could be family, friends, relationships. What is a love that just kind of disoriented you, put you off center? Think about it, talk about it, and then we'll come back together. A love that you may have experienced that disoriented you. Um, Let me start with me. Uh, A love that has disoriented me, I'll go back to when I was a child. The first time I ever had a dog. 
It was a beautiful Cocker Spaniel that I chose for myself, born on the same day as me as a birthday present. Actually, it was Valentine's Day. May 18th, I was super excited. I fed it for the first time, and I went to pet it while I was eating, and it bit my hand <laughs> so bad, I felt like I was going to need stitches. That's disorienting love, right? Probably for the puppy, because it's like, who is this person petting me while I'm trying to eat? And then for me, my expectation is, of course it wants me to pet it. I mean, that's what dogs are for, right? Disorienting love. Let me, let me hear some examples in your life of disorienting love. Um, the reason why I ask is because Jesus is all about disorienting love. Um, and I think that's the, the context that we need to approach this in, is that Jesus really is intentional about disorienting us. And you'll see that in the text here. Um, just to put some, some context on what Jesus is going to do in verse 25 forward, um, you need to understand that he had already done this to his disciples. Um, and if you wanted to write it down, if you wanted to see where that actually took place, um, you could look in Luke 9. Um, Jesus is saying in Luke 9, verses 21, um, he's already telling his disciples the very thing that he's going to tell this large crowd, Okay. So if you wanted to write it down, uh, Luke 9, verses 21 forward, up through the transfiguration. So 9, 9 21 through 27. I'm not going to cover that today, but it's just to say this is something that Luke is doing repetitively, and it's for a reason. It's for a purpose, okay? Um, so verse 25 in Luke 14, page 850 if, if you want to follow along. It says, now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, uh, Luke is taking some time to acknowledge that Jesus' ministry, we were 14 chapters in here, Jesus' ministry is going by human standards pretty successfully. Do any of you have any large crowds following you? No? No? Probably for the better, right? Um, whatever Jesus is doing up to this point is actually reorienting people around him. But there's this question that Luke often kind of asks. It's this underlying question is, why are you here? Like, what's the point? Why are you following Jesus? And so Jesus, acknowledging that there's large crowds, he turns around. So, you know, I, I mean, can you think about, can you imagine just walking? I, I always think of like, uh, well, not always, but I often think of like golf tournaments, right? There's the golfer, and then there's like the, the people that are following behind him, right? And Jesus is just walking. He's going about his business, and here's this large crowd. And rather than continuing in his journey, he pauses for a moment, and he turns around, and he faces them. And he says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Um, <laughs> is that easy to listen to? I mean, I don't know if there's a more disorienting statement. <laughs> okay, so I'm supposed to hate my father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, and if that's not enough, even me, myself? Does that make you feel all warm and cozy inside? 
we first should note in verse 26 when it says, whoever comes to me. Um, Luke chose the word uh, to instead of after. So the people that are listening here are not his disciples yet. Because if they were his disciples, Luke would have used the language after. So instead of saying whoever comes to me, he says Who comes, whoever comes after me. Right? That's, that's discipleship language. But comes to me is these people are, you know, they're, they're following Jesus and perhaps they've been following him for a while at this point. And they're starting to hear the same messages over and over and over again because Jesus often tells different parables, different stories, different teachings, but it's with the same message of what his kingdom looks like, the ways and the words, right? But whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now, hate is a strong word, right? Um, When's the last time you used hate? I hate this food, right? Uh, We have maybe a little bit of a broken understanding of what hate is, but I would love maybe as a congregation, how would we define hate? What is hate to you? Because this is important, because we're looking at through Western 2019 eyes. Distaste. Distaste, okay. Strong dislike, loathing. What else? Does it evoke emotion in you? Is it like, I'm going to give you a hug? Or is it, I'm going to stab you? (laughs) Right? Two different. Hatred, often the implicit understanding is that there's some either internal violence or external violence. Right? Hatred. Um, I want to maybe put this in the perspective of first century Jew. Because we don't live in an honor-shame society. And, And Jews did completely different cultural context. We live more in guilt settings, right? But for a Jew um, living in an honor and shame society, we need to understand what hate is in terms of honor and shame. So I wanted to um, first define in, in the Greek, hate actually means to be disinclined to disfavor or disregard. And that's in the context of preferential treatment, not treatment, uh, treatment. Um, all about spelling errors. Um, Specifically, the one I want to focus on um, is disregard. It's in the context of preferential treatment. So already, our understanding of hate in terms of the Greek is a little bit different than maybe how we would define hate. Because it's in what's your order? Who has preference? Who has the priority? Right? Thanks. Yeah, the priority. You got it. Who has the, the priority? Who's going to be treated? Remember, in a society, who is going to have the honored spot? Who is going to be created, or who's going to be treated with the most value? Now, even if you look at your relationships today, we have like acquaintances, right? And we have friends. Then we have best friends and a whole separate category of family, right? <laughs> And there's different categories, as we learned earlier, I guess, about sisters, right? Um, Certain sisters. So disregard in the context of preferential treatment. The priority is now disoriented. So Jesus is already saying, um, 
the preference that you would give them, they sh shouldn't perhaps have that preference. Now, why would that be disorienting? Because of honor and shame. So I wanted to describe what honor and shame is in an honor and shame culture. So Tom's going to put that up for me. Um, so honor within a honor and shame society is value ascribed to you by your community. And that's based on your familial, communal, and, and ancestral relationships. So let's use House of God as an example. We're all a family. What you do reflects on me. And what I do reflects on you. And our value system is created based on that. So if I, if I live a life of honor, then you all implicitly and explicitly have honor. That means amongst our community and society, whenever they hear the word, the family house of God, they're like, oh man, unbelievable. Would you like a free meal or a free drink? That's kind of what honor does. <coughs> now, however, if I do something poorly, let's say like I, I don't know, cuss somebody out while I'm driving down the road, right? And they know that I'm a part of the house of God family. Not only does that reflect poorly on me, but it also reflects poorly on you. Makes sense, right? Now, where it becomes really interesting is it's not just within a communal setting, it's also what our ancestors did. So that's where you hear like in caste societies, like in India, for example, why people are stuck in the same jobs year after year, centuries after centuries. It's because of their family before. And it's very difficult to break out of what your ancestors did. You may have, I mean, do you have control over what your family did 300 years ago? No, absolutely not. But in an honor-shame society, if your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent made a really bad decision, that will influence you in 2019. And it's only by a right standing within an honor-shame society. So you're basically having to work so that the community accepts you and values you. That's why there's outcasts, right? because outcasts are sent out because they've lost all value because of shame. Make sense? So when he's talking about hate, and I'll put up uh, shame here just real quick so you can see. When you're, uh, go back one more. When you're standing in your community is devalued. I already explained that, right? So when we're talking about this concept of hatred, right, the first thing that we should note is that they're in an honor and shame society that's built entirely on relationships. It's built entirely on how you treat your spouse. It's built entirely how you treat your children and how your children treat you. It's built entirely on how you treat one another and, and the priority in that. So, you know, one of the commandments has something to do with parents, right? Honor. Honor. So suddenly, what, like, huh? But Jesus, you see how disorienting that could be? Suddenly you're being told by this guy that you're following that everything that you knew to be true about relationship maybe isn't true. And that maybe, as he says, my father and my mother, the, my wife and my child, my brother and my sister, suddenly doesn't have the priority in my life. And for a first century Jew, can, I mean, you can only imagine how perplexing that would be. I mean, you ever been in a relational situation where somebody said something really, really dumb, and you look at your friend, and you're like, what just happened? 
Like, did they just say that? Can you imagine? I mean, this is, this is the type of situation where they're like, <laughs> who are we following? And then he keeps going. And he says, OK, so I'm going to disorient. Now any value that you have about yourself, any worth that you have about yourself, so now your personal standing within society and culture, your honor, die to it. It's not important. It doesn't take the priority. I just picture a bunch of people moonwalking out of the way, right? I don't want to hear this, Jesus. Verse 27, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, uh, many scholars uh, believe that this was, Jesus was including this because it was prophetic symbolism, just like it was earlier in Luke that I referred to in chapter 9, is that he's pointing them to the way, not just his words, but the way of Jesus, which is ultimately sacrificial death on the cross. And we have to remember that the cross isn't symbolic for somebody living under the subjugation of the Roman Empire. The cross is a real way of dying. And you know, putting it in context of today, it's whoever does not carry uh, my electric chair, my lethal injection, the noose, the guillotine, you know, throughout history, various forms of horrific death. You can't be my disciple. So he's really engaging them. He's saying, this is what it means to not just hear my words. This is what it means to follow me. And then there are some really um, interesting things that he brings up. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? When I used to work at the pro desk at Home Depot years ago, I would always have people come in. And the most common uh, reason was people were estimating how much it would cost to finish flooring or fencing. And with flooring, they always, if you've ever bought flooring before, do they tell you to buy the exact amount? <laughs> no, many of you have bought flooring before. It's always a percentage more. It seems 10%, 20%, right? For mistakes, all that kind of stuff. Special cuts, all of it. I mean, there, is, there are people that specialize in making sure that we don't mess up. And yeah, it will cost more, but for a good reason. Then he continues, uh, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him. Um, for those of you that have done flooring without purchasing that extra percentage, you can always tell, especially with tiles, because the tile is a different color than all the other lots, right? Um, there are some prophetic symbolisms regarding the tower in the first century. King Herod is building the temple again. Uh, some people think that it was kind of like a, a little Jesus jab at King Herod, like, is he ever going to finish this temple? Because people are, are craving, is the temple going to be finished? And then as a society, the Messiah, they're waiting for the Messiah to, to fix everything, right? To build a new kingdom. There's also the spiritual metaphor of a tower. You can see things above that you maybe wouldn't have seen before. But you need to know the cost required to build it, to have a different point of view, to be protected. Then it continues, verse 31. 
Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? And if he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. Now, um, a smart person like a king would look at that and say, oh, 10,000 versus 20,000. Well, clearly, I need to send a delegation. I guess I'm not a smart person because I'm like, oh, we'll fight it out, right? Pride. I mean, there's probably people sitting, listening, like, oh, no, no, 10,000 is enough. We'll do, we'll do it. And they have like the first century picture of, of 300 in their mind, like, we're going to win, right? But then he says a peace delegation would be sent out. Now, so... Verse 33, so therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. It's just challenge after challenge after challenge. Now, have any of you built a tower before? Have any of you recently become royalty <laughs> that I didn't know about? No. So he, he gives all these examples, which have contextual meaning. How many of you have seasoned food before? Yeah, everybody? How many, yeah. How many of you have eaten seasoned food before? Maybe you've never built a tower before. Maybe you've never been royalty before, but certainly you understand the purpose and value of salt. You know, it's, I mean, especially in first century, salt was such a big deal. They say that in some ways kingdoms were made or built on salt. In the first century, to share a table with somebody and to extend seasoning to one another was a very symbolic act. So when he's talking about salt, he's saying salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? See, Jesus starts to disorient, and then he disorients, and then he disorients, but then he starts to reorient. And he says, okay, so maybe this isn't how you understand what love is, but let me reorient you to understand what love is all about. I season your life so that your life can season the life of others and point you to me. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? If it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, they throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. You, you kind of see, are you listening? Are you really listening? Because if you're listening, then you're going to start thinking differently about what I'm saying. Furthermore, you're going to start acting differently because these are all action statements, aren't they? Let go of this. Stop doing this. Disorientation, disorientation. But reorientation. What brings season to our life? What kind of love reorients us? That's actually the question that I have for you to think about. Have you ever experienced reorienting love? Tom, actually, to use his example, talked about a love that he didn't feel that he was worthy of. But what did it do? It reoriented him. See, Jesus isn't just in the business of saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. He's saying, let me reorient you to a picture of what real love looks like. Let me, note, lay the foundation for you so you can build. Know the cost of this reorientation. Don't, don't push it aside. Know the cost. It may cost you everything, 
But at the end of the day, that everything may not be any seasoning for your life. So why hold on to it? That's still challenging, isn't it, right? That's why I wanted to bring up the man with dropsy. Do you all know what dropsy is? Because I didn't until this week. <laughs> yeah, like maybe sometimes translations need to do some explanation on the side, right? No. It's when fluid builds up in your system so to the point where you're so swollen that you're, you struggle to move. And interestingly, if you continue to have dropsy, the eventual result is heart issues. There is tons of metaphors that could happen here. <laughs> you become so swollen that you can't move and you have heart issues. Now, I'm just going to bring this up. So Jesus is talking to this crowd, and he's saying, this is what it would mean to follow me. This is what it would mean to follow me. But prior to that, this is all coupled together. Luke is putting it in the context of a man that's healed with dropsy. I'm going to read it to you again. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to what? Eat a meal on the Sabbath. So it's this context of seasoning, right? The context of sharing salt with one another. They were watching him closely. Just then, in front of them, there was a man who had dropsy. So he's so swollen. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. Now, if we put this situation in the context of what Jesus is just teaching them, you have a bunch of people that know a whole lot about religion. They know a whole lot about right living. They know how to build a tower, how to be a king. But when it comes down to being the seasoning of one another, they completely missed the mark. I love that Jesus chose to heal a man that is so spiritually or so physically swollen in front of people that are so spiritually swollen that they can't move. Here is this man that is filled with fluid to the point that he can't move like a normal person would. And here are these people that are staring at Jesus, the real way of truth, and he's, they get it, but they don't get it. They're spiritually immobilized by their own religion. Jesus says, all these priorities that you set in your life, if they don't start with me, then what do you have, really? Is your life a life of seasoning. Now, I want you to consider the type of love. Yeah, there's some challenge here. But in the middle of a meal, in front of the religious elite, while they're paying attention to him, Jesus is paying attention to a man that needs him. And he goes to him. Look at it. Just then in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him 
and healed him and sent him away. This challenge, these questions that Jesus asks, I mean, I can imagine him looking at the Pharisees' eyes. What is it going to take you to move? What is it going to take you to move? Is it going to take your possessions to move your heart? Is that your greatest priority? Is it going to take your own child? Is that your greatest priority? Or is it just the sheer love that you would have for somebody? Will that move your heart? The, uh, the cross is completely disorienting. The way of the cross is completely disorienting. And I stand before you as somebody that is in a situation of disorienting life right now, right? Where, and, and I look around the room and I look at all the different situations where we're in disorientation. The hope that I find is that in this text, we don't know how long this man had dropsy for. We don't know how long he was unable to move, how long he suffered. But then Jesus came to him and healed him and sent him on his way. A man that was completely disoriented is suddenly reoriented. Now, if we hold all the right thinking, we won't get it. But Jesus, as he's teaching people, this is what it means to come and to follow after me. is laying aside everything, all the priorities that you think you have. And many of you, like me, are like, but these priorities are super important. God's not saying they aren't important. And I know hate is a, a strong word, but God's not saying these desires that you have in your heart aren't important. He's just saying, are they your foundation? Are these things your foundation? Or am I your foundation? Go ahead. Thanks for sharing that. Um, that's the thing that I marvel at. But by the way, Luke's a doctor. So can you imagine as a doctor writing these things? Jesus reorients us. That's his promise. I could say more, um, but that's when we talk about attachment, love, and counting the cost. Yes, it's an expensive life. And we lose even our greatest priorities, but he constantly reorients us. And one of the ways he reorients us, and that's why I love um, that, that we have Holy Communion, and I say this every time that we partake in communion together, that is a process of reorientation. It's to look at something tangible, the bread and the wine, and say, you love me this much? You love me this much? So we start, we have a list of all of our costs. 
But then he says, I take the cross for you. You love me that much? That has to reorient our lives, doesn't it? Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, God, I don't know if some of us are in this point in our lives where we're like these large crowds and we're coming to you and we're being challenged by your ways and your words. I don't know if maybe we've been following after you for a really long time, but we just, we just I don't want to say that we aren't getting it, but it just it doesn't seem to become rooted in our lives, not because of what we do or don't do, because you love us all the same. It's, there's, there's something in, in our hearts or in our minds where when it comes to counting the costs, we just can't put you in first place. And that's a real thing. Maybe we're like the man with dropsy and we've become so full of, of these things that have broken us down, that have worn us out, whether it be our own sin or whether it be the sin of others against us. Maybe we're like the Pharisees and the lawyers who know all the right answers, but when it comes down to actually loving out of your love, we just aren't willing to do it because so we're so caught up on doing the right things the right way that we're missing on the healing of others. I don't know where we are as individuals or as a congregation, um, God, but you do. And I thank you that you give us a table to reorient us around your love. I thank you that, um, that you heal us through your reorientation at the cross. And you tell us emphatically that we are loved, not for what we do, but because of who you are. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood, the suffering that you took on for us, the sacrifice that you took on for us. And, um, God, uh, thank you for the courage that you give us to follow you, not in just your ways and your words, but in your love. Show us what it means to receive this love this morning. And God, for those of us that need reorientation, I pray that that would happen um, through your true and real presence. And for those of us that are stuck being disoriented this morning, I pray that it would produce a holy discontent in us. And that today and the days forward ahead, um, continue in that discontent. And that we would seek you, uh, not just as our foundation, but as the author and protector of our perfecter of our faith. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.